So uh, my name is Mark Horowitz. Very good to be with you on the podcast, Andre. Um, and I'm a training psychiatrist um, and researcher uh, currently uh, working between UCL and NELFT. And I've got an interest in, um, I guess, guidelines or principles in uh, helping people uh, to come off antidepressants uh, when that's appropriate. And we've known each other for a few years. You've written a few blogs for me, um, but we've never met, I don't think. Um, it's typical yes. world. Yes. Blogs, eh? yes. I'm a, I'm, that's right. I'm, I'm an elf from, from way back. I think <laughs> I, I joined in the, first, in the first couple of years and uh, actually very much enjoyed writing for the mental health. Yeah, they've been great blogs. I've really loved publishing them. It's been, it's been really interesting. Um, and yeah, you've definitely kind of got the communication of research in your blogs i think it's been yeah they've started loads of conversations which is what it's all about from my perspective right um great so tell me what what kind of drew you to this area in the first place antidepressants and withdrawal um look i, I guess what drew me uh to it was uh hearing from um friends of mine and from patients that they had trouble withdrawing from antidepressants when they tried to. And I guess what really got my attention was my first-hand experience trying to withdraw from antidepressants myself. Um, I think that really, um, you know, made it very clear that it's a, quite a significant problem. Uh, made me really appreciate um, how difficult it could be to come off these drugs. Um, and I guess when that happened to me, I looked around for guidance on how to do that um, and found there wasn't a whole lot um, of published literature or guidelines um, beyond kind of um, uh, guidance that you should take four weeks or longer to come off. And it was, that was a starting point for me trying to work out was there better evidence around, were there um, principles that might be applied that could give some further guidance for what might be um, a better way to come off the antidepressants. So for people that are totally new to this area, just give us a, paint a picture for us. Um, so I, I was prescribed antidepressants, um, oh gosh, about four years ago now. And I wasn't told yes. anything about side effects or withdrawal when I was prescribed them. Um, it was yes. a very rushed kind of clinical encounter with a GP. Is that fair? Yes, um, yes. I, I would say it probably is. So, from my point of view, I, you know, I, I was, I did my medical school and my psychiatry training in Australia, so I can't speak to the UK training experience per se. But I never heard about uh, discontinuation syndrome or withdrawal symptoms. From psychiatric medication in medical school or in the or in, or in my psychiatry training so far, um, I so I was never taught to talk about it to patients. Um, when I was prescribed an antidepressant, which is now 15 years ago, so perhaps a, a different era, it certainly wasn't mentioned to me then. Um, in fact, the first time I came across the idea that there were or there could be 
discontinuation or withdrawal symptoms from antidepressants was on the mental health blog. Uh, it was a blog done about three years ago. Um, uh, I can't remember the fellow's name. Um, about yeah. yeah, Andrew Shepard, that's it. About, about the Favour et al. Uh, 2015 review. And that was the first time that I'd heard that such a you know, phenomenon was possible. Um, so I think certainly uh, in Australian education, it, it's not, not prominent. I, I suspect it's similar from talking to other registrars in Britain that there's also not much taught uh, or much focus given to antidepressant discontinuation or withdrawal symptoms. Um, and I suspect most GPs are not mentioning it because they're not aware of it um, to, to patients. Uh, there, might, there may be some exceptions I can't speak to uh, to everyone, but I, I, I don't get the impression that's what people are being told. Certainly amongst friends of mine and patients that I've seen, they hadn't been told about it when they were started on their medication. Yeah. It seems like a really good example, and there are loads of these in mental health, aren't there, of um, a, a, an area where there's kind of a lot of evidence in, um, on the internet and in patient experiences. Um, so, you know, the Surviving Antidepressants website, for example, has many, 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 many stories of people who've struggled to withdraw from antidepressants. And yet when you look yes. at the literature, you look at the research, there's very, very little. So it was interesting when um, James Davis and um, colleagues published the, the review of antidepressant withdrawal yes. a few months ago. You know, there, there's not a huge amount of stuff out there. Yes, I think that's true. I mean, I think a lot of the criticism of that review, and there are, there are lots of valid criticisms of it, I think the underlying idea is that the, the, the literature available is not a very good quality. And I think that was the main limitation of their review, um, that they just didn't have a lot to work with. Um, and I know other people have made uh, other uh, critiques of, of their review. Um, but I think that is the take-home point, that this phenomenon, which is you know, anecdotally fairly widespread, has not had nearly the same attention applied to it as whether the drugs are effective. Um, and I think it's that dearth of information that makes it hard for people to make um, clear judgments about what to say to patients and how to guide them. Um, you know, I think it is interesting, though, that there was a sort of a reasonably scathing critique of the Davies and Reed meta-analysis and in the end, they found actually quite similar incidence rates. So I think um, the Davies and Reed review found there was a 56% incidence rate for withdrawal symptoms, and Johor and Hayes found about a 44% incidence when they used a more stringent methodology. So I, 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 you know, there is a debate out there, but I think I think that the punchline is there needs to be more research done on withdrawal, who it occurs to, which drugs are more responsible, how long does it last for, and what are the ways to avoid it. Um, you know, I think, I think any fair-minded um, psychiatrist would admit that there's clearly a signal out there. Um, and I don't, you know, I don't think denying it or minimising it is very useful. It's, it's really working out what, are the, what, are the, what is the scope of it and what are the practical solutions. Can you give us a bit of the kind of science behind this? 
um, in an accessible as way as you can. Um, so what is withdrawal and what actually happens in the brain during SSRI uh, antidepressant withdrawal? Um, look, you know, the, the answer I can give to that is going to be speculative because there is not there are not great studies on animal models or in humans of what happens. Um, there, we cited a very small amount of evidence in our paper that fits with the general hypothesis. You know, and, and the general hypothesis is, you know, any drug that causes um, a change in the brain um, over time, when it's removed, if those changes persist longer than the drug takes to be eliminated from the body, that there'll be a period of readjustment. I mean, that is a very general explanation of what happens um, for when any drug is removed. And actually, that, 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 that idea um, is broader than just for psychotropic drugs. So, for example, we know that beta blockers, you know, very, very commonly used antihypertensive, um, cause changes so that when you stop them abruptly, you get a rebound effect. You get increased blood pressure, you get tachycardia, and you get actually an increased rate of heart attacks. Um, and that is because the beta blocker causes a change um, in the body. That, that accommodation takes longer to resolve and the drug takes to be eliminated from the body. And so you get a rebound effect where um, when, when the drug is removed. So it's not unique at all to psychotropic medication. Now, the details of what, what those adaptations or changes are is a bit more unclear, although there is evidence from some PET studies that we cite in the paper that serotonin receptors um, are downregulated during SSRI treatment. So the idea being, you know, SSRIs, um, block the serotonin transporter, it increases the amount of synaptic serotonin available and in response to increased serotonin, uh, serotonin receptors postsynaptically um, will downregulate you know, as is the normal homeostatic response. Then you, you would extrapolate from that and of course this is just um, uh, hypothesizing that when the SSRI is removed and the synaptic serotonin levels returned more to normal. You now have them acting on downregulated postsynaptic serotonin receptors, and that would be perceived by the body as a hyposerotonergic state, you know, a low serotonin state. Um, so, you know, that is, that is a plausible um, uh, explanation for what is going on, although the, the exact details of it need to be worked out. It was also pointed out to me when we were writing the paper that, of course, there are receptors, serotonin receptors elsewhere in the body, uh, particularly in the gut, and that may explain why people get um, gastrointestinal symptoms after they stop their SSRI, uh, which can be widely varying, can be diarrhea, can be nausea, can be constipation. Um, there, there is a little, there is a little speculative corner of the literature that talks about um, some of the more strange neurologically flavoured aspects of SSRI withdrawal. Um, people talk a lot about dizziness 
about electric shock sensations they get when they move their heads. Um, and there is uh, a couple of papers that suggest this, this is an effect on the serotonin 1A receptors that seem to be involved in balance and seasickness. And so that some of the symptoms that people experience may be related to seasickness because of an effect on 5-HT1A receptors. But again, that's just a, a kind of a plausible speculation. I guess one of the issues we've got here is that there are so many different sorts of SSRIs and we're all yeah. different. You know, all people with yeah. passion yeah. take these drugs, you know, genetically and in other ways. So yeah. it's very difficult when we're talking about side effects or withdrawal effects to do anything yeah. personalised other than to just say, here's a long list of things that people say they have experienced. Right. Look, I think there's definitely very wide variation. I think that's quite clear. I have, I know people, friends and patients who, after many years on an SSRI, have stopped it and have noticed nothing. So it's, it's very clear out there that, you know, there are people who have no problems. I've heard of mild problems, things that last for a few days. Um, and I've heard of things that last for weeks. I've heard of very severe problems that go on and people can't get off their drugs and go back on medication. And I've, I've certainly heard that far more for paroxetine and venlafaxine than for other drugs. Um, and that's a bit reflected in the, in the literature findings of which ones are more severe. Um, so you're right. You, you can't predict who is going to get side effects on starting the medication and for whom it's going to be mild or severe. And the same probably applies to withdrawal effects when they stop it. Um, I guess, you know, ideally you'd have information that says, um, you know, this is the range uh, of symptoms, you know, it's, it's sometimes mild, it's sometimes moderate, it's occasionally severe. Um, and, you know, with good data, you could say to people what, what, what the expectations are, and that would just be a part of informed consent. Some of them might decide, look, you know, I'm in, I'm in dire straits at the moment. I want anything that will help a little bit. Um, I, don't, I don't mind what happens at the end. Or other people might say, well, that makes me want to hang on a little bit longer and see if I can work out other methods of dealing with it. And that'll be up to the patient and the doctor. Um, how, how do you think the evidence that we have currently, and I'm not just talking about research evidence, I'm talking about kind of lived experience evidence we have, how do you think that should impact now on primary care? You know, because one of the messages in the Davis Reed review was, or the yeah. top line message was, half of people who take antidepressants will have withdrawal symptoms, and half of those yeah. people will have severe withdrawal symptoms. Now, if my GP has said to me when he prescribed me sertraline that I was going to have a one in two chance of getting withdrawal and a one in four chance of getting severe withdrawal, I would not have started yeah. taking antidepressants. Do you think we should right. be giving that kind of advice to people based on the evidence we currently have? Look, look. Um, while I think that the Davies and Reid review was, you know, a, a, a significant contribution to the debate, certainly opened up discussion. I think everyone recognises. I think the, the authors do as well that the one in four being severe is probably an overestimation because it was based on you know, qualitative studies that asked people 
to talk about how severe their symptoms were. And so it was attracting people who were concerned enough about the issue to fill in uh, an online survey. So I think, I think probably one in four being severe is probably an overestimation. Um, the problem is there isn't great other evidence to look at in order to more carefully quantify it. So I think at the moment there's a question mark as to what percentage of people it will be severe for. Um, and I think that is the space for more research. But then we're, we have to make a decision now what we're doing, given imperfect knowledge. Um, I'm not sure. I, I would think that given that there is evidence that some antidepressants have less withdrawal effects associated with them than others, there might be a preference for those medications. So the fact that medications with long half-lives like fluoxetine seem to be less associated with withdrawal symptoms anecdotally and in research is one reason amongst many for why you might choose a particular medication that I think should have some bearing on what's prescribed. And it might be that medications with short half-lives that have reputations anecdotally and through research like paroxetine, like venlafaxine, that might also come into a rubric of why you would decide or not decide to use a certain medication. Um, so, look, at it is, I guess, you can't give very complicated ins and outs to patients from GPs. You know, they tend to give you a short summary of what's going on. I think it's reasonable to say a significant portion of people with experience withdrawal effects. They range from mild to severe. It's hard to predict for whom they're going to occur and say there's uncertainty around it. You know, I think... I think that's the honest thing to say. And what what would you do if somebody from the Wellcome Trust, for example, came to you and said, Mark, we've got £10 million. We want you to yeah. research withdrawal of antidepressants to really improve yeah. our knowledge in this area. What would you prioritise in terms of research? Um, look, you know, I've been talking to people about what such research would look like. Um, I think, um, so I think there's a, there's a couple of, there's two separate issues. There's one the issue you've just brought up, further understanding of what, what percentage of people have withdrawal, how severe it is, to allow us to tell that to patients. And that's one. And number two is working out patients who are already on the medication, what is the best way for them to come off the medication? So the first, in the first category, um, there are, the first thing to do would be to, to ask people about their own experiences, to take a, a representative group of patients, ask them how many of them ex have experienced withdrawal in the past, how severe it was, does that have any bearing on them still being on the medication? Um, and then next, you would have to take some people off medication and see what happens, um, whether that's taking them off half a dose or their full dose and observing them for weeks or months afterwards to see what happens um, with, with a potential you know, ethical dilemma of you may be causing harm to some patients. Um, that, that might be got around by perhaps reducing people by a quarter or a half of their dose to see what the effect is. Um, 
so I think that's the that's the that's the first section. Um, uh, what to see the, again that would help you determine the incidence severity and the duration of 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 withdrawal symptoms. The second category: how do you work out the best guidelines for tapering patients who are already on medication? I think um, there's so there's there's, there's there's already one study being done that looks at that in part. Well, there's two studies actually. There's the Antler study at UCL, and there's the Reduce study at Southampton, and both of them are looking at ways of of tapering patients off medications. The Antler study is looking at a two month um, protocol for taking patients off medication, which involves halving their dose once and then halving it again down to a quarter before stopping. And each of those steps is for one month. Um, I think that's a reasonable first step. That is essentially what the NICE guidelines recommend broadly. Um, it'll be interesting to see how many people can tolerate that. Um, I, I would think then um, that, that a couple of things would be worthwhile. One, I'm a bit biased, but I think testing a hyperbolically reducing regime of antidepressant would be useful to see that re repeated halvings of the dose down to something like 140th of the original dose to see whether that would allow people to come up more easily and that might be done over a few months. Or ideally, I think it would be taking patients off, checking there was, so making a reduction of say half, checking people's withdrawal symptoms, waiting till they've abated, doing the next halving of medication, seeing how long it takes to abate, and iterating that until they're off, and titrating up or down the speed of um, tapering so that patients can tolerate it. And I think what that would that would do, as we sort of suggest in the paper, is develop a nomogram of what people what what tapering rates are relevant to people. And it is obviously the case that some people will have no trouble, they'll be able to get off in a couple of weeks, it won't be difficult for them. There'll be other people for which it might take months or longer, and you could start to trace out the trajectories of what, what, how long people take, and you can start to work out what are the determinants. Is it age? Is it time of being on medication? Is it um, half-life of medication? Is it the receptor affinities of the medication? And you could start to trace it out so that you would provide guides to people who would like to try tapering off their medication. It's interesting, isn't it, when you look back over the decades of research that we've got about antidepressants, that we know so little about side effects and withdrawal effects. Is there, you know, there's a lot of conspiracy theories on the internet, but what's, what's in it for a research funder to put money into this? <clears throat> look, I think, I think the, the facts are, you know, the Cipriani et al. study examined 522 studies looking at starting medications. And most of those studies went for six to eight weeks. Um, and the reason why there's so many of those studies is because those are the studies that the regulators in America, Britain and Europe ask for to have drugs um, uh, registered for use. Um, and that's why there's obviously significant motivation from drug companies to um, perform such studies. Um, on the other hand, there's, I'm not sure, a dozen or less studies looking at withdrawal symptoms. And that's because there is no impetus from regulators to make 
manufacturers do those studies. And obviously it's not in their interest to explore problems with their medications. Um, I, I think that there are two reasons why um, funders should be interested in the issue. One, um, you know, it is a significant problem for a lot of people. Um, it, it, uh, you know, and, and it is, a, it is a, a, a cause of, of, of morbidity. Um, so I think uh, further research into what are the best ways to taper patients would, would help those people that are struggling. Um, and two, I think one of the, the issues um, might have some bearing on the use of antidepressants is you know, if withdrawal symptoms have been confounded with relapse in discontinuation studies um, that have been used to um, determine what is the value of medications long term, then looking more closely at withdrawal symptoms might change um, how effective these medications are perceived as being in the long term.